When people start to share lives, that's when resiliency starts to occur. That's when social capital all of a sudden is unleashed. When you work with organic intention, you also work with the momentum of the people that live within the communities. Because we have such a physical presence of the properties, we see a lot more people collaborating, even on non-urban village projects, which is really where the beauty is. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. Together, we have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how social impact can exist in a company's operations, product, and culture sometimes unexpectedly. We hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of social impact for you and feeling inspired by the potential to do good. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. And today's guest is Gino Borges. Gino is a partner at Open Path Investments, a social impact real estate company that acquires underperforming multifamily properties and transforms them into vibrant communities. Gino was previously a principal at Impact Capital Group, an incubator for mission-driven entrepreneurs. Gino is also an experienced real estate investor, a frequent speaker, and host of the Journey to Impact podcast. Welcome, Gino. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. It's really exciting to have you. And Super thank exciting. You. Thank you for joining us. So to kick it off, Ed alluded to your background in real estate, and I would love for you to just tell us a little bit more about your background and what inspired you to pursue real estate and an impact component to that sector. Yeah, it started off early because I was actually raised in a uh, third generation dairy farm family in the Central Valley of California. I was born and raised on the land uh, for agricultural purposes about two hours east of San Francisco. And we had one of the largest dairy farms in the San Joaquin County, which is a major agriculture county in the entire United States, actually, not just in California. And it was from that experiences uh, or from those experiences of being not just on the land, but being asked to actually work the land. There was a lot of different products that were grown, obviously, like hay and corn and alfalfa, the alfalfa hay. But I mean, there was something just also uh, real and tangible about it because that's how my family created a, a small amount of wealth in terms of, you know, sort of relatively speaking, because they were always talking about like, that was the way to get ahead was to keep acquiring farmland and so forth. And, it, you know, when I grew up, when I got older, I thought I was going to go into finance and I did go into finance, but I didn't know it. I didn't know it at the time, but I went into one dimensional finance, meaning essentially just sort of profit for profit's sake. And after I received my first job at a very conventional type of insurance, financial marketing sort of uh, firm, after about a month of being there trying to sell annuities and mutual funds, I was starting to fall asleep at my desk. And my boss uh, came and tapped me on the shoulder during one of my naps at, at my desk and goes, you know, you know, I don't think this is going to work out for you. And I was like, I agree. And even though I didn't know what I was going to do, I knew that something about my life in my mid-20s was calling me to do something more holistically than just sort of money for money's sake. Even though I didn't know what it was, I did realize that there was something about human inquiry and, and asking sort of these bigger questions about like, 
what's it mean to be in the world? Like, I mean, what's going to be my contribution? That ended up leading to a PhD in philosophy at Purdue University. So I overdosed in human inquiry for about 10 years. Wow. And it was into my mid thirties that I came out and like, I still had this interest in finance. And I was fortunate enough through, you know, laws of attraction and and having people of intentionality start coming into my life because that was what I was trying to lead myself. And through that process and through that exploration of meeting people who are leaving, living intentionally, we're also people living intentionally who are working with money. And I was like, wow, okay, this is possible. This is possible to work in finance, to work intentionally, to work in a way that's more holistic, to look at the whole scope of who's being impacted by the money that's being moved. And then in particular, when all of a sudden it, it was looped in with real assets and, and real assets uh, in terms of real estate, it just made a logical sense where like this was all starting to come full circle for me. So in a lot of ways, I'm very much a late bloomer into the world of impact. A couple fortunate things have happened. One is that, that there's enough critical mass around, around it now so that the warnings not on us to always have and explain why we're doing it this way but now it's sort of second nature and so i mean that's you know i mean that's how i got to the point where i'm at now i'm a late bloomer and do it as well but i always like to say no matter how late a flower blooms it's just as beautiful i was just about to say that (laughs) (laughs) it's great i think at any stage getting involved in this space is it's the perfect time and if it's the right time for you then i think that that's really what matters i didn't have any money when i was young anyway so i couldn't have done impact investing exactly i mean i think that it's you have to meet you have to meet your portfolio or your investments where they are but that is not to say that you can't be an impact investor with a small portfolio that's true that's a separate conversation it is it is true and and Gino, I think what resonates with what you just said is that you're using the tool of real estate. And I, I want to really get into how you're doing that and creating vibrant communities. Because when we speak about impact investing, we're often thinking about either ESG, screen funds, or direct investments into social enterprises. So how is the impact manifesting at Open Path? Can you share some examples? Let me step back just a bit and to help, you know, the audience understand how most multifamily real estate actually occurs. And then that will set up the contrast for what we're doing in terms of developing and cultivating resilient communities. So there's roughly 40 million rentals in the United States. So essentially two and a half people per rental live. So 90 million Americans are living in rentals. Of those 40 million, about 10 million are single family residential The other 30 are what people know as apartments, like garden style apartments, two to three story apartments where there's 100 to 500 units there. Mm -hmm. And then also some of the, you know, smaller duplexes and stuff. But for the most part, it's these major apartment complexes that you'll find in any metro area, especially in a suburban context. When people acquire those assets, essentially, it's a very impersonal asset. Like you can buy a deal in Dallas, a 400 unit deal for $50 million and live in Manhattan and never visit this property, never know who lives there because there's an entire infrastructure of professionals around this industry that actually provide all the services necessary in order to maintain the property and and the financing and so forth. So the capital can actually be always at an extreme distance or vice versa. You can be in Dallas and own something in Manhattan and never have to visit it. And here's a kicker is, is that the infrastructure is so optimized and efficient in terms of the social infrastructure of professionals around the space that you can actually do really well financially just doing that. 
But we asked ourselves as, you know, the founder of Open Path, Peter Slough and myself are both Burning Man folks. And we asked ourselves is like, this really what we want to do long term in terms of just owning real estate for the sake of owning real estate and then sort of checking, you know, our balance at the end of the month. Is that what we really want to do? Or is there something here that's, uh, you know, that's much more uh, alive or it has a much more potential? So as you know, I mean, part of the inspiration from Burning Man is just is, is extreme community. It's like radical forms of testing how we can actually connect. And the beautiful part about apartment complexes is, is that you have hundreds of people living in a small space, but they share walls, but don't necessarily share lives. And that's where the opportunity is, because when people start to share lives, that's when resiliency starts to occur. That's when social capital which is typically trapped because people aren't connecting, all of a sudden is unleashed. That all of a sudden becomes, you know, the thesis. And that becomes the motive for going in and buying these deals is, is that, yeah, we can do well financially, but we can also improve the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of people at this point because of our scale by actually developing what we call the urban village program. And I can touch on, uh, you know, sort of how we do that. Yeah. What are um, some of the, what are some of the main components of that? Just, you know, what's, what's an urban village? What are the, like the top five things that make one? So the key distinction here is, is like, obviously over the years we've been contacted about, Hey, this urban village from other operators is that we want to do something similar, but most people try to do a top down hierarchical type of programming, meaning like, and a centralized form of programming. Like we know what folks in Dallas need. We know what people in Portland need. And so we just do sort of a standardized programming across all properties. There's a small part of that, but the special software is actually honors the alchemy. We have a team of what we call urban village mentors that actually visit very similar to what an anthropologist would do going into a new community, inductively takes notes or it takes notes and through induction, is able to determine what the needs and offerings are of that of the uniqueness of that particular community. So our communities in Dallas, for instance, we have two communities in Dallas, may have a different type of community feel because we're honoring the reality of who lives there versus somebody in Phoenix. Each community, as a result, has, because it's community-driven, uh, excuse me, resident-led focus, has resident leaders so it's not like open path is coming in and doing all the heavy lifting. It's what we call sort of the residents are being led by their organic interests. Like I want to lead the gardening program. I want to start composting program. I want to teach an ESL program. And so when you work with organic intention, you also work with the momentum of the people that live within the communities. And for something to thrive over a period of time and for somebody something to get over the natural friction of executing on an idea, you really need that because you can't be there propping somebody up on a, on a regular basis. Any apartment complex, somebody could say, I want to start a ESL program and they could put some flyers up on the doors or you know some kind of community message. What do you do to enable that in a, in a more powerful way for somebody who wants to do that? There's a couple issues. There's one at the physical plant level in terms of how you design a space or redesign it. And then there's the other ones in terms of social design. And I'll start with the physical plant first. Most of the times we acquire these properties, they're going to have um, a lack of community space that actually invites participation. It's going to be very uh, choppy. For instance, there'll be a 1,500 square foot community center 
that, that will be part of the apartment complex, yet it will have all these demising walls and it just doesn't invite some circular type of like invite me in. It's the difference between going to a cafe that has a big family table versus a bunch of like individual tables. And I don't know if you ever experienced that, but you're more inclined to meet somebody if you sit at the family table and start conversation versus, you know, it's always awkward. I mean, so would you go up to somebody and ask if they're sitting at a two person table and they're by themselves, can I sit there? Chances are you won't. But if you go to a family table, you say, Hey, do you mind if I join you? And often the answer is yes. It's these small sort of what I refer to as sort of social permaculture ideas that actually invite the creative energy to just naturally come together. So that's, that's the physical plant. You need that. The other thing is, is that you want to have people on your team, urban village mentors that actually work for open path that actually help mentor people on. It's more than just flyers, right? It's more about a lot of people doubt their ability to actually trust their offerings. So even though there's an ESL offering, it's like, I want to do this. I want to do this. There's a lot of like doubt that comes in, or there's a lot of execution, like, how do I do this type of thing? Remember, our tenants are mostly working class people. And unfortunately, in America, they really aren't encouraged to lead in most of their contexts. And they're really not acknowledged as leaders. They're basically acknowledged as, fortunately, automatons and commodified in terms of their in terms of their offerings. That's our typical tenant. It's not a class A tenant, high achieving tenant that makes a hundred thousand a year that, you know, got the perfect score in their SAT in high school. We're actually dealing with uh, folks that make anywhere between thirty and seventy thousand dollars a year, depending on the area. Hardworking folks, most of them essential workers. So what we do is we help them get from A to Z because what we realize is a lot of people would come in excited, but then to follow through on and to execute the idea. And that's what really ends up materializing and really sort of sticks to the bones. You illustrate an outcome, which is inspiring leadership in your residents. Have you measured or even just observed other outcomes as a result of your urban village program and the model of your investments? Sure. I mean, there's lots of different angles on that. Is there anything in particular that um, sort of sticks out for you? Well, I mean, I think two angles would be would be interesting. Um, one would just kind of be, you know, quality of life improvement. But the other is, have you seen the outcomes link back to your business as, you know, perhaps having, I would guess maybe tenants are, not delinquent on rents as frequently as traditional businesses or value the property more. These are just naive assumptions on my part, but those two areas I think would be really interesting to shed light on. In terms of a business perspective, I mean, if you look at our overall portfolio, we have about 5,500 units. We've had 18 different exits. Our portfolio is about a billion dollars at the moment. And we're in seven states, eight states, I should say. And we've been doing this now for over a decade. Urban Village started in roughly 2008, 2009 as a pilot program. And our internal rates of return, just so just to jump to, you know, the finance part of it has on all of our exits have been exceeding our underwriting. So our underwriting is targeting like 15% rates of return. We've been hitting over a 30% mark consistently on our portfolios. So we have not conceded anything as a result of this in terms of 
it's very difficult to get into like reducing it down to like the third decimal point, right? In terms of causation, in terms of attribution. We do know that because we have such a physical presence of the property, we have so many people on our team visiting our property and we know what a property is like before Urban Village gets off the ground and we know what it's like afterwards. And what we do is we see a lot more people collaborating even on non-urban village projects, which is really where the beauty is. Like that's where resiliency is, right? It's not so much what urban village is doing in terms of specific program and helping somebody, but the real beauty is when like you, Ed, if you're living in, in this particular apartment complex, have participated in an urban village activity, but then on the next concentric circle of influence and connection, you meet Sue and John who live in the complex as well, have kids a similar age. And all of a sudden there's a moment where you realize that you're not going to be home in time for your child in order to, but your child needs somewhere to go. And it's at that moment in time where you call their neighbors up and say, Hey, you mind opening the door, you know, you know, the door for my son or, you know, taking care of him for a couple hours. And it's those, well, what we call marrow moments, right? It's like, those are the moments that keep us up at two o'clock in the morning you mean like bone marrow, marrow moment? Is that what you mean? Yeah. They, I mean, basically stuff that actually sticks to the bone. That's really like the core to what it feels like to live in a you know safe, secure type of thriving um, existence. So the other point is, is that I would just be hesitant to say a direct causation in all this. We sort of look at more of holistic because there's numerous macro factors that go into a success that are, that are even beyond just our you know, the micro elements, uh, you know, like of our community. For instance, during the pandemic since 2013, obviously this has affected essential workers. Our, our tenants in particular were heavily influenced. Delinquency went up, but not as much as we anticipated. But there would have been nothing that Urban Village, so where Urban Village comes into play, is like, okay, there's been a systemic shock. Now all of a sudden you see people coming together as a result of really being able to strengthen their resiliency muscles. And that's what the Urban Village Program is really designed to do is like whether it is during social unrest, pandemics, an economic uh, meltdown, that's when you really start to see the value of resiliency. Thank you. And it's clear that you run a double bottom line fund and company. Have you been able to integrate the environment to consider you know, the triple bottom line impact as well? So we focus on two parts um, on that. And the first one's very traditional in terms of the physical plant. And most of those come in the form of the, the renovations. When we purchase these properties, it's going to be a lot of old physical plant because the technology of the 80s and 90s, that particular vintage, they only knew what they knew at that particular time. But I mean, the resources, the quality of resources has improved quite a bit. Whether it's the paints we use in terms of less off-gassing, whether it's energy-efficient appliances or water-saving appliances for um, the bathroom or kitchen, or whether it's the carpets we're using or the linoleum, or if it's how we are, we actually revert a lot of landscaping to uh, native landscaping. So that's at a physical plant. And so we'll spend millions of dollars uh, on improving the property um, from an ecological sense. I think the other special sauce is that it's one thing for people to have a physical plant that's safe and healthy. But if you're having people still detached, for instance, from their food and nutrition 
and actually a lack of sensory awareness and sort of nature connection. And so that's where Urban Village actually starts trying to cultivate gardening programs and tries to steer people into nutrition programs, food, in terms of food prep, because it's crazy if like, yeah, you live in a great green apartment and yet you're still just taking in all the toxicity of the secular world in terms of, you know, the low, I mean, you know it. I mean, there's just a huge nature disconnection. There's a huge disconnection from people's body and the food that, I mean, they put put in their uh, bodies. And so it would feel non-holistic. They're not really honor the individual as part of the, of the greening. So essentially we're greening the body just as much as the physical plant. I love that you think that deeply. Let's turn to our rapid fire so we can get to know you even better. Yeah, let's get into the some fun details here. Tell us, what book is on your nightstand right now, Gino? It's not by my nightstand. It's right here, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Tainishi Coates, uh, Between the World and Me. Great. What is your go-to beverage in the morning? Um, hot lemon water with a little dab of Himalayan sea salt. Somebody told me that recently. I'm going to start doing this. No caffeine. <laughs> okay. Name something that's giving you hope right now. What's something that's giving me hope is, is how people are reconceiving what it means to be able to get together, even in the, the midst of whether it's aerial smoke or COVID-19 or unrest, but people really are still believing in that a sense of belonging is just fundamental to what it means to be in the world. So to watch people be resilient about that and be creative and adaptive has been really beautiful to watch. That really resonates with me. What is one trend you are watching in your industry? Climate. Do you mean like the like in your industry you have to think about what the effects of the climate will be on your buildings or what do you mean by that? Yeah, the whole thing. The climate risk associated with a building. For instance, we've had a lot of damage in Dallas from a tornado, for instance. They hit one of our complexes. It was a, you know, a tornado had two tornadoes that have moved through and hit our Dallas complex. There are hailstorms in Colorado. And these storms are much more intense and as a result have much more significance or economic. And then long term, just the natural migration that's going to occur because some places are going to become largely unlivable. How do you unwind after a long day? I do a lot of body work and floor work. And I actually just downloaded this cool thing. It's these like alpha relaxing sound wave things Mm. that I actually turn on. Well, um, basically, it's a lot of stretching. I'll do some sound work, some meditation. And if I'm really disciplined, I do not check my phone like an hour before I go to bed or scroll through the New York Times or ESPN.com. But I'm not always good at that. I could never do that. That's a hard one. I'm actually doing a social media fast at the moment. Are you? Absolutely. And it's going to continue until at least November 3rd or November 4th. Social media fasting. Yeah. And that's really interesting. The ability to bring in kind of sound and meditation. We do find that a lot of the leaders that we interview have meditation integrated into their routines as well. Yeah, I bet. I mean, hopefully it becomes more and more, uh, not an accoutrement, you know, something you add on to, but more just about fundamentally what it means to be in the world and then to be leading from that spatial alignment essentially. And turning back to your business, where do you see it 10 years down the line? How, how do you envision growing if, you, if, that's a, if that's an aspiration of yours? Yeah, we're likely going to get significantly larger in terms of number count 
In terms of urban village, what I think is uh, potentially interesting is that I think that there's a deeper opportunity to actually connect people to their micro communities, like not just within their own apartment complex, but to really actually go one concentric circle outside and to see where the potential partnerships are that have resources and services and aspirations, but yet don't have an audience. Like we have the audience, but yet to really sort of maybe mentor and catalyze partnerships that actually amplify that connection. So it's one more concentric circle. You have your first concentric circle, which, which is your apartment community, but then, you know, every community has this, like I'm here in Reno, I can name five you know, resources and people that are leading either think tanks or nonprofits that are looking for audiences in order to actually put forth their um, programs and services or, you know, and their help. And our audience needs help. I mean, our audience definitely needs help in a lot of ways and it's no fault of their own. You know, we live in a system where they haven't been treated equitably in terms of the economic pie, in terms of, I mean, us folks who are in the world of capital, receive a disproportionate amount of, you know, return for the amount of work that we put in. And that's, that's just, the, that's where we're at right now. So I want to do everything possible to try to actually give them opportunities to experience not just the social pie, but also improve sort of their economic and material plane as well. I have a quick question before we wrap up. So when, you know, traditional sort of real estate you're buying, and then I I think you said you had 10 exits or 17 exits or something like that. What happens after you exit? How does the urban village carry on without your wisdom and guidance? Yeah. So a couple of things is that one, one thing is we, we tend to prefer buyers who will continue the program in some capacity. But what we've learned is that you can't do that as a form of a legal deed. It, you know, it's not like you can say that you need to maintain this because unless somebody is heart driven and really intentional driven, it's not going to work because I mean, it's not like hiring a pest control company or, you know, your dishwasher repair person to come out where it's just sort of like a commodified type of activity where it's sort of anonymous. It's like, it requires work. It's heavy lifting. It's a lot of, it's a mess. And, you know, it's like the way that policy is made or sausage is made. So is community has a lot of warts on it. So most people in this business tend to be just sort of on the finance side of life, which is, you know, you can make that concoction look very pretty. I mean, you can glossy it and you can look that, but when you actually get working with hundreds of people and you actually want to dive deep with hundreds of people, it's like, you know, you have to be open to moving where you may not want to move. And by moving, I mean, just with your intention, not like, in terms of a physical note. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, we see ourselves more as school teachers who have an opportunity within a short period of time to influence people and hope and believe that those skill sets carry on beyond just that particular physical space because most people do move on. I mean, apartment complexes aren't like residences. I don't have the exact data, but the last time I saw, I think the average stay in a residence was somewhere between six and eight years. An apartment complex it's roughly a little over a year is the average stay. So there's an enormous amount of transiency. There's about a third of the population that stays there long-term, a third sort of midterm, and then there's like another third that's just rapidly turning over. And so we just are trying to honor sort of the whole bit. We have had buyers who have continued the program, though, 
we try to sort of detach ourselves from that knowing that we know that unless they're really into it from, from the heart and intentionality, it will tend to fade. So our focus is on really have an impression on those people that we actually have an influence on, which are those people that are front and center on, with us while we own property. Okay, cool. Thank you for that. That's fascinating. Thank you so much, Gino. I know that you care so deeply about the communities that live in these complexes and that you know, from getting to know you through Tonic, and we've had Adam Bendel on, on the show last season, I, that's really struck me. And I just find your mission to be incredibly inspirational. So thank you so much for joining us today. Such a pleasure. I mean, thanks for um, asking me about my story, how I got here and um, being able to share this. I feel very fortunate. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gino. It's been really great having you. Thank you. Take care. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.